to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm speaking with Patricia Sellers, an international criminal lawyer involved in criminal law at the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. She is currently the Special Advisor for Slavery Crimes at the International Criminal Court and was previously the Special Advisor for Gender. She teaches at Oxford University in the Master's Program on International Human Rights. Thank you for joining us today, Patricia. Thank you for having me. I think we'll just dive right in with focusing on your uh, background in international law and gender and ask how does international law address gender and particularly the unique ways that gender uh, may make one more vulnerable to certain violations or even mass atrocity crimes? Well, that's a very good question because uh, I think about 30 or 40 years ago, uh, that would have also been a question that no one would have even posed, more or less try to understand the answer. But what is the intersection of gender and international law? Well, I'm going to try and narrow it down even more than international law to say a subspecialty of international criminal law. We know that gender now is a word that possibly substitute, although has multiple larger meanings than just the word sex. And if we went back into international human rights law, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, we see that word sex, that one cannot be discriminated uh, on basis of sex. And we can even see that in what I would call now early humanitarian law, just meaning the Geneva Conventions of 1949. But today, when we look at international criminal law and we talk about gender, we're really talking about a much uh, broader understanding, broader than just sex, physical characteristics. We're talking about gender in terms of uh, roles people play in society, male and female under the definition of Rome statute. But we're also talking about uh, sexual orientation. We're talking about gender uh, presentation. So the intersection of international criminal law and gender is vast. It looks at areas that include sexual violence, areas that include gender persecution, Uh, areas that show how does gender drive the occurrence of crime, international crimes, and what is the impact that international crimes have on gender even after they're committed. Thank you for that. Um, That was such a, you know, a refreshing way to open because I think in um, atrocity prevention, a lot of times when we talk about gender and addressing gender, there is that kind of immediate impulse to look at um, sexual violence. Uh, and often in in sort of policy circles, when you talk about gender, um, if it's not about sexual violence, then it's women, peace and security. And there isn't that more nuanced look at the intersection that you've you've just mentioned here. 
So I think to, to go back a little in time, you know, at the top, I mentioned that you worked um, for the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little about what it was like being part of those historic legal decisions um, regarding the interpretation of sexual violence as war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Well, I think the Yugoslav Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal were remarkable moments, uh, not only in legal history, but I would go as far as to say as in human history. It's one time when we thought that law could be the response to outrageous harms that included sexual violence. Let me make a small caveat. In no way did the Yugoslav Tribunal act as the first tribunal, international tribunal, to ever try and redress sexual, redress sexual violence. One has to look at the Nuremberg Tribunal and I would underscore the Tokyo Tribunal. The Nuremberg tribunals often uh, assailed because there is not the mention once within the judgment of the word rape or other forms of sexual violence. But if you took the time to read the transcript of the Nuremberg tribunal, you would see that sexual violence, including sexual violence against male prisoners, uh, sexual violence against female and occupied zones such as France, was part of the evidence that was presented in addition to the sexual violence that happened on the Russian front. So that when you read the Nuremberg judgment, even though the word rape doesn't appear, sexual violence was adjudicated in the tribunal under specific provisions that at that time dealt with sexual violence, such as Article 46 of the 1907 Hague Convention. And I just wanna slightly turn our attention to the Tokyo Tribunal, which I think is fearfully uh, overlooked. And when, could read chapter eight of this very voluminous judgment that comes out of the Tokyo Tribunal. And before finishing the first page, they're talking about mass rapes. And all throughout chapter eight, there's uh, sexual violence and what we would call today gender-based violence against peoples in um, Asia and Asia Pacific uh, that entailed males, females, uh, children, and even the elderly. So why I would, love to raise the flag and say, yes, it all started at the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. And it was about us who were there at the beginning in 1994. That would not be true. So we were very fortunate uh, that at the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, that we, we did a, a really, I think, uh, a deep dive into legal history but into the facts that were presented before us. What facts came out of the armed conflict in the former Yugoslavia? Well, there were facts that were rampant with um, uh, sexual violence, such as rape, uh, sexualized torture, uh, enslavement that was sexualized enslavement in the town of Porcha. And then when you look at the genocide that occurred against the Tutsis in Rwanda, uh, the tribunal finally takes judicial notice and explains that, you know, unfortunately every genocide has its main characteristics, but the characteristics of the genocide that occurred against the Tutsis in Rwanda was basically comprised of killing and of raping. And so the jurisprudence from the Rwanda tribunal uh, certainly illustrates and manifests and finally adjudicates that type of genocide, a genocide comprised of killings and of sexual violence, particularly rape. And so those days were days when you understood that 
you were looking at unique evidence under extremely unique situations, but in a very unique institution or institutions that had been created specifically to judge international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. I do have to say that everyone had the sense that you were making history on any given Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday of the week. Indeed. I mean, everything that came out of those trials had had a sense of a historic element. Um, and we've spoken before with Ambassador Rapp, who who similarly worked on, you know, cases that had a historic element, even though it wasn't um, the gendered uh, side of things. Oh, well, I would differ. I would say that Ambassador Rapp worked on one of the most important gender cases, which is referred to as the media case. Mm. And that's the case where we, uh, you know, look at the radio station of Nilkolin that was in Rwanda and the news, uh, the newspaper, Kabonga, where for just absolute months, there was this type of propaganda that was instigating the eventual genocide. As a matter of fact, the charge was public and direct incitement mm. to commit genocide. And what I would like to um, underscore is that a significant part of that incitement was incitement to do sexual violence. So the mm. media case is a case about sexual violence. It's about the, the type of language that foments sexual violence that becomes part of the act, the constituent act of genocide. You know, you've you've framed this as historical, but also following from um, you know prior history with Nuremberg and the Tokyo trials. So where do you think we've come since the two um, tribunals for the genocides in the 1990s? Well, I think we have uh, really spread out into legal territory, and I would say human territory, that was very underestimated with the commencement of these tribunals. And I, I often like to say, to use a bit of a militaristic phrase, is the first couple trials that dealt with, um, for example, sexual violence, rape as a constituent act of genocide, but even more so that was in the Akiesu case, in the Ferenzia case that we have rape, sexual violence that's being charged as torture for the first time, and uh, the Chilabichi case, uh, which looks at male sexual violence and female sexual violence in detention. Uh, this type of sexual violence that in many ways uh, revolves around um, rape and genitalia. This is how we, in quotes, landed on the beach, almost in, in Dunkirk, with very undeniable war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide that really took in sexual violence. It was difficult for anyone to listen to such testimony and understood, understand whether it's nexus to an armed conflict or a war crime, or that it was an integral part of the attack against the civilian population as, genos as um, crimes against humanity, or a means to destroy a group as genocide. I think that gave us this opening that now we could more concertedly look and see how sexual violence permeated these atrocity crimes. And by doing that, we can then start contextualizing it, looking at gender, and opening up really international criminal law um, in means that it had not been registered in the most recent past. Uh, there had seemed to have been a 50 year gap almost between the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunal, 
until we get to um, Yugoslavia. And a lot of amnesia has happened, legal amnesia um, between those two time periods, so much to the extent that one was even questioning uh, was rape a war crime. I think we tried to get rid of that um, dubious question and provided a strong answer. And from there, we went mm -hmm. forward to look at various situations where sexual violence and then gender uh, became a contextual norm in terms of our investigation and legal submissions. Um, and what did, what did you do to help frame this in your role as, as gender advisor at the ICC? Well, building upon um, my role as a prosecutor and uh, legal advisor for gender at the Yugoslav Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal, one of the things that uh, became quite apparent is that legally we would not be limited to just the charge of rape whenever we wanted to talk about sexual violence. So therefore, through those tribunals, uh, we showed that sexual violence could uh, be legally characterized as torture. It could be legally characterized under enslavement. It could be characterized under cruel treatment as a war crime uh, under other inhumane acts. And in addition, the understanding that was brought forward by, uh, in particularly uh, the era of um, uh, Deputy Prosecutor Michelle Jarvis, that when you contextualize uh, the sexual violence under various uh, legal provisions or crimes, it really revealed the nature of the atrocity as opposed to being something that was on the sideline, it allows you to understand the, the very the broader nature of the atrocity. So by the time we come to the International Criminal Court, I think that there is an understanding, first of all, that to investigate sexual violence and then to make legal submissions, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a luxury. That wasn't uh, an act that took away from other investigations. Uh, it was more so the necessary gender competent, I would say, responsibility of investigators and prosecutors so that these acts could be adjudicated. At the International Criminal Court, you can understand that the Rome statute, the very statute itself, uh, reflects that understanding that sexual violence isn't limited to the crime of rape. And so under the Rome statute, we see this uh, actually um, much more detailed uh, characterization of different crimes that might have a sexual nature, such as forced sterilization or forced pregnancy. Um, we see also the crime of sexual violence. So there are more legal tools to bring into the international uh, criminal court in terms of substantive crimes. From your perspective, after you know spending years reviewing evidence of gendered crimes and you know being a prosecutor, you know, are there trends and signals that we should be paying attention to um, before atrocities even take place that would indicate that gendered crimes will occur or um, targeting is happening, let's say, in a country that would indicate atrocities may be oncoming? Um, are there lessons learned or lessons to be learned for early documentation or for investigators um, about the risks of these crimes? Oh, I would certainly say yes. Uh, there are what I call and I refer to as, as types of precursors. Uh, I've already mentioned one, and that was with the media case, that we should be attentive to uh, propaganda that is inciting violence, and in particularly propaganda that is inciting sexual violence, 
that could become part of the genocide. That's a precursor. That could have been um, that could have been stopped in and of itself prior to anyone being harmed in the genocide. Uh, we can look at precursors today when it's important to understand the violence that's happening prior to an armed conflict or prior to crimes against humanity and also genocide. And what part of that violence is actually uh, gender-based violence? Uh, who is being uh, persecuted and harmed, let's say under the rubric of, of human rights prior to getting into uh, the Belicost situation or the crimes against humanity situation? We can certainly understand by, as I often say, the gender ideology of the perpetrator that acts of sexual violence uh, became a norm often during wartime because the perpetrator comes from a society wherein he could understand or she could understand uh, the value of inflicting sexual violence against someone who you would claim to be an enemy or someone who was uh, othered than you. So I think if we look at it very carefully, yes, we, we see that uh, even during situations of um, Armed conflict or crimes against humanity, uh, we know very well that when children are abducted from schools or kidnapped, that sexual violence will follow. And I call those abductions and kidnappings uh, for many of those children, uh, those are acts of slave trading prior to them being reduced to enslavement and enslavement that's uh, sexualized. We know that when you have situations of detention camps and once males and females are separated, both of those populations become very vulnerable and it can often lead to the sexual violence committed against detained men and sexual violence committed against detained females, uh, whether they be girls or women. So we, we certainly know the precursors. Um, as a matter of fact, we can look in our current societies and we can look uh, historically of what were, what were the signs that allowed us to know that some type of gender-based violence uh, was going to occur. Societies that detest um, sexual minorities or persons who have uh, sexual orientation uh, that isn't um, uh, heterosexual or cisgendered, that type of uh, uh, vile against a sexual orientation could be a precursor as to what would happen in time periods of persecution, crimes against humanity, or armed conflict. I'm glad you've raised that because I'm what I've noticed and, and what we've noticed through our work at the center is that there does seem to be this this divergent trend um, that relates to everything you've talked about so far, where we're advancing accountability for gendered crimes, where that sort of area of international law is evolving. And then at the same time, within countries, there's sort of transgression of national protection of rights related to women and LGBTQ populations. You know, we're speaking at a time where there's been a rollback on women and girls' rights in Afghanistan. There are increasing persecution of LGBTQ populations in other countries. How do you sort of reconcile these, these different realities in the world and navigate these trends as a legal practitioner? Well, I think that it's uh, absolutely excellent to have provisions of law that one can resort to, in particular for egregious situations. And at times that law itself acts as a deterrence, acts as a means to prevent, uh, acts as a means to signal. 
but it doesn't necessarily for certain perpetrators and for certain, um, I would even say uh, national authorities or even non-state actors that are, are intent of, of rolling back or inflicting harms, it doesn't, that law doesn't necessarily prevent them. What we'll see is uh, that they will say that the law is disdainful, that the law does not apply to them, uh, that uh, certain provisions uh, of the law are biased uh, for some countries in the world as opposed to uh, how they're, they're traditional societies. But it's, it's very uh, noticeable that uh, once a, a country starts taking away in particular uh, rights of females, girls and boys, and ignoring certain rights uh, that traditionally one would say uh, men would have, uh, such as detaining political opponents and then uh, gender-based and sexual violence against those men occur, uh, we can see that the law is often ignored because it does not serve the perpetrator's uh, purpose. When one looks at um, uh, jurisprudence from World War II, it's very interesting that the, uh, the defense of both the Axis powers in Germany uh, and the Axis powers in Japan is that those conventions, the early uh, Hague Conventions or Geneva Conventions or customary law, they said that that didn't apply to them. So it's not necessarily for an absence of having the law. Uh, it's in the perpetrator's interest to say, oh, that law doesn't pertain to me. At the same time, we do see a pushback before the law is even written. It's, um, it's quite curious that in Europe, we have many countries who have not signed uh, the Istanbul Convention uh, against, uh, for violence against women, uh, that the United States uh, is not a member of uh, CEDAW. Uh, we can understand that there are countries that uh, might claim to uh, be signatories to CEDAW and then make reservations against some of its most important um, provisions. Uh, but with that being said, uh, recently I've written on the fact that gender discrimination or discrimination based on gender grounds is still not considered a use cushion uh, value within our international law. So I can tout the power of the provisions of the law that exist, but I can also recognize that they can be ignored by perpetrators and that there are some, I think, very essential laws that even countries who are in the forefront of guaranteeing some human rights have not acceded to human rights uh, conventions themselves. There, there is often that unfortunate mismatch between words and deeds with many countries who we believe either are or should be at the forefront of these very important issues. I want to turn um, quickly now to your new role and, and ask, you know, what does it mean to be a special advisor for slavery crimes at the ICC and, and why does that role exist now? Well, I think the role exists now because Prosecutor Khan, uh, Khan uh, agreed when I asked, could I fulfill that role? I've been special advisor for gender, and then he had proposed to be special advisor at large. But ever since, uh, in particularly during the Kunarats case, which is commonly called the Fulcher case from the Yugoslav Tribunal, the issue of enslavement under crimes against humanity uh, very much intrigued me, concerned me. Uh, certainly it would, because I'm, I'm a descendant of slaves myself being African-American, 
but even more so to look at enslavement under international humanitarian law, international criminal law, was something that I thought had not been done anywhere near to the extent that it need be. And I felt that this was an issue, but also this was um, a way that we could raise legal provisions, but also legal submissions and offer more protection. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, I say there's a hidden potential in many of the slavery crimes. We often don't recognize that uh, child soldiers, be they boys or girls, are basically enslaved children. We can see them from the aspect of other child soldiers, but we also should see it from the aspect, as I said before, that their abduction and kidnapping is a form of slave trading. Slave trading is reducing a free person into a state of slavery. So abductions and kidnapping are the slave trading of children who are reduced to slavery as child soldiers. Another reason I wanted to highlight uh, the slavery crimes is that there has been much um, said in the past, I would say 20 years, about sexual slavery. And I think the case that I worked on, Kunarat Sapocha case, because we looked at Yugoslav uh, females, meaning girls and women, who had been held uh, sexually violated and eventually were traded or exchanged, uh, we understood that enslavement under the Yugoslav statute could also encompass enslavement that was sexualized, meaning that the exercise of powers of ownership was uh, exercising powers of ownership over sexual access to you and sexual use of you. In the Rome statute, when we see that the provision of sexual slavery is there, we think in many ways that it's, it's quite a, a good feminist victory. When one looks closer, we understand that sexual slavery in some ways has been much more used for holding females out to be raped, such as in the Foccia case. But that sexual slavery provision is not broad enough to pick up the breadth of sexualized enslavement. And I'll give you an example. When we look at the girls who have been kidnapped uh, and abducted, i.e. slave traded to become girl child soldiers, they might not be raped right away. As a matter of fact, often uh, they wait until they start to menstruate before they can be distributed. It's um, uh, in quotes, uh, Bush wives, uh, a term that I really detest. So these enslaved children, even though they are not sexually uh, being abused via rape, those girls have the menstruation checked every month. They are sexually enslaved. Those boys are told whom and whom and when they can sexually assault girls. Those boys are sexually enslaved also. And I think that it's time that we really understand uh, the breadth of sexualized enslavement, but just the breadth of the slavery uh, crimes, including slave trading. Another example I will give is that at the um, extraordinary uh, criminal uh, chambers of Cambodia. We know that there has been uh, what has been called conjugal slavery, where males and females are, are forced to have a conjugal situation. And we understand that the rationale for this conjugal situation from the perpetrator's point of view is actually to breed children, to breed children to be part of a new Khmer state. There we see that males and females have to interact 
sexually with each other because why? Because they are enslaved persons. And then the last aspect I would like to bring out of that with the slavery uh, crimes is that we often now have fallen into this phrase of talking about children born of rape. But we should understand that when those children are born usually from enslaved mothers, or they could be from enslaved males and females, mothers and fathers, such as in Cambodia, those children per se at birth are enslaved children. And so I'm hoping as special advisor for slavery that we can bring forward a bit more of the safeguards that should govern our, our very being in situations of enslavement and slave trade that right now are fairly reductive, that are basically used for sexual slavery of, of females who are held out for rape. Thank you for that. I think this is, you know, in many ways, a, a perfect complement to the role you had before. It's sort of, uh, it's different, but also builds on in a very important and, and powerful way. Thank you. Yes, I think it's a, it's, it's a continuation, it's a, an extension evolution. And as I've um, said before, that I think it's also a means of, of looking back. Uh, today, too often, we, we want to run to modern slavery. So I really had to ask myself, well, what is so modern about it other than it's contemporaneously occurring now? But when one looks at the uh, historic slave trade, both of East Africa, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, and even the intra-African slave trade, and when one looks at the breadth of activity that slavery encompassed, I think by not having that historical point of view, that today we're letting uh, many acts of slavery and slave trade really pass under the radar because mm -hmm. we keep pointing to see it as this modern slavery. And uh, another issue I'll raise is that modern slavery kind of leads us to that word of trafficking. And trafficking is a transnational crime. It's like organized crime. It is a, a, a veritable uh, plague on humanity, but it's a crime whose jurisdiction is not jurisdiction of international crime. The international crime, slight equivalent to trafficking is really slave trading. And so we should restore slave trading because it is the precursor to slavery. And we should understand that trafficking, which really evolves out of uh, the white slave trade is a different crime with its own jurisdiction and its own policy reasons for being. So I think we should, we should use both of our uh, legal tools, uh, both trafficking, but in particular, we should revive, I think, uh, the slave trade so that we can really understand what's happening in these situations of armed conflict and crimes against humanity. You've had such a formidable career and experience with the intersection between international criminal law, gender, and human rights. What advice or closing thoughts do you have for members of our audience working on these issues? Well, I think what I would like to um, kind of underline is that all of us per se is, as human beings, uh, there's not one of us that escapes having um, uh, a sexual nature, a gender identity, uh, a sexual orientation, even if we're asexual. Uh, that's that's just part of being human. Uh, that's just uh, what human beings come with and what also human beings have a right to safeguard and, and preserve. 
So when I look at international human rights law and international criminal law, I look at those legal regimes as means to really safeguard and protect what we humans come with naturally. And so uh, to, to be an advocate for gender justice, uh, to be an advocate to make sure that we pick up all forms of sexual violence irrespective of if it's the boy or the elderly lady or the uh, disabled patient, uh, it is just a way of reaffirming our humanity. It is in, in no way uh, condescending or patronizing uh, to uh, one would say, oh, this is just for, you know, a feminist Jupiter act, or this is just something that, you know, makes us feel good. No, this is, this is really protecting our humanity that we all have to be invested. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.